My son, do not, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. You know, I know it's routine that before we uh, hear the sermon, we pray. Uh, but I just want to reinforce again that our God is a God who speaks, and uh, he can speak to your hearts today. So let's pray to, and ask him to do that. God, we thank you that you give us this word. We thank you that you gather us here in this place. We thank you for your presence, and we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be our teacher today, uh, that you would allow this word to be filled with power and to be uh, to seep deep within the recesses of our hearts, that we wouldn't leave here unchanged, uh, but that we would leave here uh, finding great refreshment as we delve into your very word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so today originally was supposed to be the last sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes, but I'm going to hold off on giving that last sermon until next week because that's kind of like the thunder of the book of Ecclesiastes and I knew not a lot of people would be here today. So I'm going to wait until next week and uh, we'll finish off our series on Ecclesiastes. But what I thought I would do today is kind of look at a passage that is, I think, somewhat related in the fact that it falls within wisdom literature, uh, but also somewhat related because it calls us to uh, obey God's commandments. And uh, what I want to do as I begin this message today is basically ask a simple question that I think could serve as a good barometer for uh, how you're doing in your faith. If you were to look at your life, ask yourself this, uh, whose story are you living in? Okay, Whose story are you living in? And I'll tell you why I like that question as a good barometer for our faith because I think sometimes other kinds of questions that we ask aren't as helpful or don't get uh, deep enough. Uh, sometimes you can ask someone, and I ask this people all this, this all the time, and I, I've kind of learned to stop asking people this, but sometimes I ask, you know, are you a Christian? And what that means is do you identify as a Christian? And the reason I, I don't ask that anymore is because, you know, there's tons of people out there who identify themselves as a Christian, uh, but they don't practice Christianity, and they don't even actually believe in the things that Christianity teaches, but they call themselves a Christian because it's something that they grew up in. So it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you inherit an ethnicity maybe, an ethnic identity in the same way. A lot of people view uh, religious identity in the same way, and they might identify themselves in a Christ, as a Christian simply because they grew up uh, in that kind of faith. Or we can even ask this, and we can say, well, what do you believe? Do you believe in the very things that Christianity teaches? But I think sometimes that question can focus too much on our minds. It can focus too much on the intellect. And sometimes we can say, yeah, I believe that Jesus was real. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
but that truth could be completely disconnected from our heart. So when we ask this question, whose story are you living in, I think it, it does get to the heart of the matter a little bit because it tells us what do we actually believe to be true? What do we believe is the right vision for the good life? And do our hearts actually believe it so much that we live in that story? Or to put it another way, is this a story that we trust? Is this a vision that we trust? You see, even though we identify as a Christian, and even though we might be uh, have, have been walking with the Lord for, for many, many years, and the reality of it is we can so easily uh, embody a different story, uh, a story that says this, you know, the vision for the good life is a life of material gain. It's a life of great comfort. It's a life of a perfect family. It's a life of great achievement. These are the keys to a life that flourishes, and we can easily make God into just a, a mere character, into this ultimate story that we, we live in, rather than understanding that God is the hero of the story, that he is the main character. And when you discover who the real hero of the story that you're living in is, uh, I think then you get to the question or to the heart of the matter of who is it that you trust? Who do you trust? You see, for many people, I think the hero of our stories is probably going to be ourselves. And I think that's what the culture preaches as well. It's up to you to make things happen. It's up to you to create a life for yourself. It's up to you to create the very life that you desire and that you want. And so what we do is we, we go about trying to do that because ultimately this is a story that we believe in. Now, if you look in this passage today in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, it teaches us actually about faith. Faith. And what is faith? Uh, just to put it very simply, I think we could say faith is trust. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It doesn't just mean you believe Jesus existed. It doesn't mean that uh, you believe that all of these things happen from an intellectual perspective. But it actually means this, that you trust Jesus enough that you follow him, that you follow him. And that's why I think in one sense we can say everybody in the world has faith because everybody trusts in something. Even the non-religious person has faith because even the non-religious person puts their trust in something. You know, it's impossible to live life. It's impossible to make decisions when uh, there's no trust. Uh, just to look at it from a maybe an economic perspective. You know, just this past week I watched uh, this movie on HBO, Too Big to Fail. It's based on the the book Too Big to Fail, written by the, um, what's his name, Andrew Sorkin, the New York Times uh, journalist. And, uh, you know, it, it struck me, especially as I was thinking about this passage, uh, in the movie at least, what the government, what they were most concerned with when the financial crisis happened was restoring trust. They needed to restore trust in the economy, in the markets. And so they would try to do all these things, uh, make all these policies, and, you know, spend a lot of the taxpayers' money all for the purpose of restoring trust. Because if you think about it, our very economy is built upon this concept of trust. Uh, if you don't trust what you're investing in, then uh, I guess everything collapses. You think about, not tomorrow, because nobody's going to work tomorrow, I don't think, but Tuesday, when you go to work, what are you going to do? You're probably going to actually work. And you're going to work because you trust that your employer is going to give you a paycheck and you're going to be rewarded or compensated for that work that you do. But if you don't have that trust, maybe we don't work. Maybe we say, hey, I don't really think you're going to pay me for the work I do. So until I have that trust, I'm not going to work. You think about trust. Trust is such an important thing in life, 
such a trust is such an important thing in relationships and you know especially in marriages uh, especially in friendships you need to have trust and without trust then uh, relationships don't flourish and you think about this in the context of our relationship with the Lord and what the proverb is saying here is this the key to living a life that is filled with wisdom the key to living a wise life is this it is to trust the Lord with all of your heart because if you don't trust the Lord with all of your heart then you don't live fully in God's story and then what we end up becoming is these half-hearted people who try to live half in God's story and half in another story and when we do that we never flourish to be the people that God intended us to be Proverbs 3 it's framed as as a lecture from a father to a son and uh, you think about it it's this advice that's coming from a wiser older loving parent of someone who maybe has experienced life and learned some life lessons and what this older wiser father wants to do is pass on these lessons to his son because he loves his son and he wants his son to live uh, wisely and I think what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to listen in on this lecture and we're supposed to learn what it means to be wise and so we're gonna look at this passage but uh, before we do there is a word that I want you to just keep in your mind here and I want to highlight and it's this word this very small word that makes I think all the difference and I just used it it's the word all all in verse 5 it says trust in the Lord with all your hearts verse 6 in all your ways acknowledge him and the promise that follows that is that God will make straight your paths and I once heard someone say that uh, there is and this is true I guess uh, geometrically but there is only one angle in which you can stand up straight but there are infinitely many angles in which you can fall and similarly there is only one straight path but there's a variety of paths that we can walk that are crooked and the way to walk a straight path is according to this Proverbs is to trust in the Lord with all of your heart not half of your heart all of your heart and so what we want to do today is we're going to exp explore some questions that I think uh, hopefully are practical to us and questions such as these. What does it actually mean to trust the Lord with all of your heart? What does it mean to acknowledge him in all of your ways? And are we doing that? And if not, how do we do that? Okay. So first, what does it mean to trust in the Lord with all of your heart? Now we can very easily state it in a negative and we can say that we know it means this it means to not lean on your own understanding and it means to not be wise in your own eyes now the reason that should be a little bit uncomfortable uh, or discomforting to me at least is that we seem to live in a culture I think especially in this time that really encourages us to do these very things we are supposed to be self-reliant people we're supposed to know what is best for ourselves and we're supposed to act upon that knowledge or that supposed knowledge because again the hero of the modern story is the self we are supposed to stand on our own two feet we are supposed to be the ones that make our own dreams come true but according to this passage think about this that is the way of the fool right that is the way of the fool now if you're a Christian then you might know this you might know that of course I'm supposed to trust in the Lord and it's one thing to know it but it's another thing to to do it and uh, just for illustrative purposes, you know, I thought about doing this. I said, you know, maybe I'll ask everybody to stand. But then I, I, 
as I imagined this in my mind, I was like, nobody's going to listen, and I'm going to look really uh, foolish up here. <laughs> so just, just imagine it in your minds. What if I asked you all to stand up, okay? And I said this. I said, the person next to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just stick out your arm, and I want you to just completely lean on that person. Right? Put your full body weight on that person. And here's what I think would happen. Most of us wouldn't really do that because most of us wouldn't trust this person to uh, support our, the entirety of our body weight. Uh, we would probably, you know, just for the sake of the exercise and to appease me, you would probably just kind of, you know, put your arm on the person, but all the while you're just standing on your own two legs. Uh, but you're going to make it appear as if you're leaning on the person. And I think that's so illustrative, actually, of maybe how sometimes we live our Christian faith. Uh, that rather than actually leaning upon the Lord, we're standing on our own two feet, and we actually just kind of make it look like we're leaning on the Lord without actually doing it from our hearts. And we become half-hearted. And, you know, we do that because we want to portray this uh, this identity, the sense that, you know, we're good Christians, right? Especially if you are somebody that identifies as a Christian. But then sometimes we don't do it wholeheartedly. And if you look at this Proverbs, and if you look at the structure of this Proverbs, there, there is this pattern that you find here, and the father gives advice, and after the advice, there's a promise. So you see advice, trust in the Lord with all your heart, then you see the promise, and he will make straight your paths. Advice, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Promise, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And if you think about that promise, that is a wonderful promise that I think we all yearn for and that we all need. And so if we simply reverse the logic of this, maybe we feel lost, maybe we feel sick, maybe we feel tired, and maybe we feel that way because we are not trusting in the Lord and we're actually being wise in our own eyes. So then what does it mean to actually trust in the Lord with all of your heart and to state this in the positive uh, let's look to some of the other verses that we find in this passage. I think the first thing we can say is this. It means meditating upon and obeying God's word. You look at the first two verses, and it says, Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And, of course, in the context of the Proverbs, this is probably referring to the, the law or Torah, which Jewish children would have been catechized in, and they would have grown up learning about the law. And maybe this father is recalling how he taught his son the law, and he's saying, you know, these things that I taught you growing up, don't forget them. Right? Don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Remember and obey, continue to obey God's word. Now, uh, this summer, just to forecast a little bit, uh, you know, I, I think I want to return to a sermon series that we started in the beginning of the year about cultivating good spiritual habits. And I think one of the topics that I want to uh, preach on this summer is going to be on the, the idea of really getting into God's Word, uh, getting into the Bible, meditating upon it, uh, drinking deeply from it. Uh, but for now, I, I just want to say a few brief things uh, regarding this. And uh, what I want to say is, you know, if you look in verse 1, uh, I think it's so interesting that he says, let your heart keep my commandments. Right? Let your heart keep my commandments. And verse 5 also, again, talks about the heart, that you are to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Now, we tend to think of the heart as being the, the seed of emotion. It's the very thing that makes us feel. But in the Bible, the heart is a lot more than that. The heart is not simply the seed of emotion, but the heart 
is the seed of desire. In fact, the heart is what shapes your emotion in addition to shaping your mind, in addition to shaping your will. It's the center of who we are. And so therefore, the heart is not something that primarily feels, but the heart is something that primarily desires. Or to put it another way, the heart is something that primarily worships. And these desires shape our emotion, our mind, and our will. So for example, if your heart desires money, you're going to be really upset when you lose it, or you're going to be really happy when you gain it. If your heart desires money, your mind is always going to be fixated on thinking about it and thinking about how maybe you could acquire more of it. And your will, your actions, are going to reflect that desire because you're going to act on it. You're going to make all of your decisions, maybe your career decisions, maybe where you live. Uh, you're going to make all of these decisions based on what your heart desires. Now, a heart that desires God is also going to be a heart that desires to keep his commandments. It's going to be a heart that desires to obey him. And you hear that phrase, obey God's commands, and I think some people have a, a little bit of a negative reaction to that. And I think the reason is because, again, in the modern story, it says, be wise in your own eyes. And therefore, God's commandments seem to prevent you from doing that which the modern story tells us to do, which is why it's so undesirable to so many people. It feels like it's uh, repressing the individual. But you see, in God's story, to obey him is actually life-giving. <laughs> To obey him, according to this Proverbs, it leads to peace, it leads to healing, and it leads to great refreshment. And so you know what we need is we need a heart change. We need to desire God. We need to desire his word. And if you think about it, how does that happen? How does, how does the heart change and how is the heart transformed? Well, on one level... Only God can do it. Only God has the power to do that, which is why we pray, which is why we need to be in prayer and ask the Lord to show us grace and to change our hearts. But I think perhaps on another level, on a human level, I also think that the kind of habits that we form and the stories that we live in can actually have a deep impact and a profound impact on the desires of our hearts. Uh, I you know, it's very easy to think that we are ultimately cognitive beings, that we are thinking beings. And so when we want to change something, uh, we think the answer is, you know, I just need more information about it. So let me go get this book. Let me read this book. And this is how I'm going to change. And isn't that how many of us are? This is how many of us react. But, you know, I think that's somewhat lacking. And I can tell you from personal experience that's somewhat lacking because, uh, you know, on my last physical, I found out my cholesterol is a little high. And so I went on the internet and I looked up high cholesterol and I started reading stuff about it. And, you know, I, lear I learned a little bit about it. My doctor recommended, you know, he gave me this packet to, to learn a little bit about it. And he said, you know, you have to eat better. You have to eat more vegetables, less fried foods, less greasy foods, and you need to exercise more. And, you know, I had all this information, right? And I know having high, high cholesterol is not a good thing, right? I know at least like things like heart disease and stuff. But even though I had all this information, I didn't change, right? I, I still continue to, to eat the way that I did. I still continue to eat things like pizza. Uh, I don't exercise as much as I ought to. And uh, 
you, you kind of wonder why, why it's because I still desire these things, right? I still crave these things. And so how am I going to change my desires? It's not just simply by learning more about it, but I think it's by changing the habits of my life. And what I hear happens is, you know, the more you eat healthy foods, the more you get used to vegetables, then you actually kind of, you know, crave more vegetables and cleaner foods and healthier foods. And, and then you eat greasy foods and you go, oh, man, that's so heavy. I don't, I don't yearn for that as much anymore. Or people who run all the time, right? You crave running uh, because it's become a habit. And it's like, you know, if I don't run today, then I just feel so sluggish. I just need to run because you've built these habits. And because you've had these habits, it's had a impact on shaping the desires of your heart. Similarly, uh, I think we do need to cultivate better spiritual habits, especially in a place like New York that, you know, breaks good habits. <laughs> uh, I think we need to be in habit of being in worship and be in the habit of prayer be in the habit of being in God's word. Uh, be in the habit of even, even obeying God when the desire isn't there yet. And eventually, I think God will give us the desire when we take that step of faith and live a life of obedience. Let me give you an example of how this might work. Uh, you know, when I talk to people, and when people are the most excited, and I'm talking about you know people in church, I'm talking about other Christians, other believers, people get the most excited not when they get a promotion, not when they get an increase in salary, but in my experience, I noticed that people get the most excited when they take a step of faith and when they trust God. That's actually when people get the most excited. I, I, I see people get the most excited when, you know, it's terrifying, I know, for many people to, to talk about your faith and to share your faith and to share the gospel with somebody, right? But then when you do it, it's actually one of the most exciting things. And when I talk to people who've done it and conversations about Jesus come up with a friend or a coworker, people are so excited because you took a step of faith and you obeyed. I think when people go on these short-term mission trips, I think people, that's when I see people the most excited. Why? Because you took a step of faith and you trusted in the Lord and you lived a life of what, uh, perhaps the kind of life that God is calling us to live, and you experienced it, and it's extremely exciting. You see, I think uh, we need a little bit more excitement here in our hearts, in our lives, and we're not going to get it uh, when we get a promotion. We're not going to get it when we get that new job. But I tell you, I think we will be the most excited when we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, when we take a step of faith, and when we obey, and we do the very things that God wants us to do. That is going to be the most exciting thing to partake in and to be a part of. Now, there's, a, there's another way that this proverb tells us in which we learn to, to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. And I would say maybe this way is a little bit more passive, and we see it in verses 11 to 12, and it says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. And I think what he's talking about here in terms of the Lord's discipline is probably hard times, probably trials, probably some kind of suffering. And you see, suffering is a powerful force. Suffering is a powerful thing. And what suffering will do is either it will push you further away from God or it will draw you even nearer and closer to him. And you see, when we are experiencing trials and when we're experiencing our difficult times, I think one of the temptations that is often underestimated is the temptation of 
becoming more self-centered and uh, going deeper into ourselves. Uh, when we're experiencing suffering, it's going to be easy to fall into self-pity and to focus on our own problems and to focus on our own lack of comfort. And the reason why that can be so dangerous to our faith is because it can begin to justify a whole host of other kinds of sins. Then we begin to justify the envy of our hearts as we begin to look at the easy, comfortable lives of other people and we say, why can't my life be like that? Then we begin to justify forgetting the needs of the community because we're constantly thinking about our own suffering and our own needs. And the more we press into ourselves, the more we move away from true comfort and true grace. And then the more, I think, we begin to feel as though God has abandoned us and doesn't care for us anymore. And you see, at that point, uh, you know, Satan has done his job and he has distorted this vision of God that we are supposed to have of a God who is loving, a God who is good, a God who cares for us and yearns for our good. And that becomes easily distorted into a God who wants to forsake us, perhaps even a God who wants to punish us, perhaps a God who has abandoned us and no longer cares for us. And if you think about the temptation in the Garden of Eden, isn't that what the temptation was when the serpent said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's raising doubts. Does God really care for your ultimate good? And those seeds of doubt, when they enter us, and when we already have seeds of self-righteousness living in our hearts, then I think it will come out in full force, rebellion against God, because then we are going to start thinking these kinds of thoughts. I don't deserve this, and God shouldn't be letting this happen to me. And poof, trust in God vanishes. Faith in God is gone. But there's another way, I think, in which we can see hardships and trials in a different light, and we can view it with a full trust in God. And when we do, it'll have the power to draw us closer to Him, into His sweet presence, and it'll have the power to even build a deeper trust in Him. You see, sometimes suffering is particularly painful because what it does is it undercuts the very things that we are leaning on. Sometimes we are leaning on these dreams of a romantic relationship, a perfect family, a successful career, a healthy life, a life of great comfort and material gain. But what suffering does is it takes those things away. And when we're leaning on these things with our full weight, then we experience the crash of our idols being broken and destroyed. But you see, it's also in that way that Suffering can have a sanctifying power because it can show us this, that perhaps we have not been leaning on the Lord with all of our hearts, that perhaps our foundation is not as firm as it ought to be. And the Lord is there to be our rock and to be our foundation and to be the very one in which we can lean on. And ultimately, that's a good lesson to learn because in that lesson, God makes straight our paths. In that lesson, healing comes to our flesh. In that lesson, refreshment comes to our bones. And we begin to see trials and hardship not as punishments, but as the Lord's good and gracious discipline. 
Now, have you ever thought about this? What What is the difference between discipline and punishment? And I think we can say this. You know, even though punishment could be a form of discipline, all punishment is not necessarily discipline. And uh, wherein lies the difference? Well, I think the difference lies in the heart behind it. Because discipline presupposes love and often has the goal of training and teaching. Punishment only has to presuppose justice or vengeance. And if you think about what this passage is saying, it's quite amazing because by referencing the Lord's discipline, it's presupposing something great. It presupposes that the Lord loves us. You see, these verses are actually quoted in Hebrews 12. And that passage starts off by saying this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you see, what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is he also is trying to encourage this community that is suffering. And right before he talks about the reality of God's discipline, he encourages them with this and he says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one who endured the cross. You see, because the only reason that we can be disciplined by God at all is because Jesus himself was punished. The only reason we can call trials and things of this sort as discipline and know that we are disciplined as a father disciplines his son is because Jesus experienced God's justice and vengeance and punishment all for our sin as he died upon the cross. You see, even the very thought or idea of discipline has to presuppose a gracious God. And this gracious God reveals himself so powerfully and climactically in the work of Jesus Christ as he went to the cross for our sin. And that is also why we can be confident in our suffering and in our trials that it is discipline and that it is for our good and that it is meant for us to grow, perhaps even in greater trust of the Lord. Now, uh, I'm going to conclude here, but let let me just end by saying this. You know, I think if we're going to be the kind of church that God is calling us to be and that God wants us to be. Uh, I think we have to be all in. We have to be all in. We have to live and embody God's story. And uh, we can't live half in God's story and half in the modern story. We have to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. Because then we're going to just be too scared to do the things that God perhaps is calling us to be. And we're going to live in great fear. You know, just to echo what Pastor John preached last week, and this is part of the reason why I want to preach this message, we have to do everything with all of our might. And we can't be half-hearted people doing things in a half-hearted way. You see, I know uh, for many of us that if we've been part of the church and serving for a long time, if we live in the city for a long time, Uh, the city can kind of grind on you. And being a church in the city, uh, it can be a grind, and it's not always easy, and it can be difficult. And perhaps even uh, in the city, uh, there are even greater challenges to to really trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts. And it can be even 
more difficult to live a life uh, in that way. Now, you know, we're always thinking about the future. We're always thinking about cost of living. We're always thinking about our jobs and our careers. We're always thinking about all of these things. And just like the prayer that we prayed before today, we're always asking the Lord to bless what we do. But I think being all in means this. Uh, God, what have you blessed, and how can I be a part of that? How can I be all in in your vision and in your mission? And that is a scary place to be, I know. And fear can grip us, and fear can tell us and help us rationalize, no, there is another way that we can live. But you see, what we need then is we need to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, do we not? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't care how big or small we are, uh, but I know this, no matter how big or small we are, if we have a people filled uh, with, if we have a church filled with people who trust in the Lord with all of their hearts, a people who are really all in, I think what God can do is limitless. Uh, I think we can dream great dreams. I think we can pray bold prayers. And we can really see and be excited for what God has in store. Um, and for us, for people in New York, for this community, for this city, even through us, what God has in store for people in the world, in places that God is moving powerfully. Uh, you know, this weekend, ask yourself, reflect. You know, I had to do a lot of m- reflection myself. And uh, whose story are you living in? Uh, which story do you trust in? Trust in God's story. It's the most exciting one, and it's where you find the most life and refreshment. Let's bow our heads in prayer and uh, reflect as the Lord, as uh, the worship team leads us in song.